Well, we return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, a a chapter that's dealing with greatness or spiritual greatness. That's the subject that's introduced in verse 1 when the disciples come to Jesus asking Him a simple question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is, um, this is what uh, Jesus gives in response, what we find in the entirety of this chapter, this, uh, the, the, the uh, subject matter that he's attempting to define. What does spiritual greatness look like? How is, how is it defined? What is its focus Is it knowing a lot of Bible verses? Is it leading more people to Christ than someone else? Is it giving more money? What does it look like? How is it defined? Well, as we make our way through this chapter, we find, uh, what we find is that greatness has a lot to do with how you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ, how you deal with their temptations, how you deal with their sins, how you forgive whenever they have sinned against you. There's a lot of discussion throughout Matthew chapter 18 on the issue of sin, whether it is dealing with your own temptations, dealing with the the stumbling blocks of others, the need to confront them in their own sin, the need to forgive them whenever they fall into temptation, a lot of discussion about issues of sin. But behind all of it is this bigger concept, this bigger discussion of spiritual greatness, which is marked, uh, as Jesus is telling us, by an attitude of supreme concern for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you may remember, if you were with us uh, several weeks ago, the way Jesus initially responded to this was by calling a child to himself and placing that child in the middle of his apostles, and he He tells them by way of illustration to this child that this is the way you enter the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God with this kind of childlike attitude or childlike humility. A child uh, uh, certainly doesn't claim to know much. A child renounces, you might say, uh, any kind of trust in their own wisdom. They're filled with questions. They're always seeking out answers and information. They don't look at themselves as the source of all knowledge. And so to enter the kingdom of God, you become dependent on God in this way, dependent on Him for your understanding and wisdom and everything, uh, dependent on Him for for even help and strength, recognizing your own vulnerability, your own weaknesses. You don't enter heaven without first coming to that place of seeing your need in all of these areas, your need in terms of wisdom, your need in terms of strength. But then Jesus clarifies that that's not just the way you enter, that's the way you are to continue. It's not just the starting place, it is the goal to maintain that kind of simple childlikeness throughout all your days in your walk with God. In fact, this is his defining statement of greatness in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's not just the way you start, that's the way you are to end. That is the goal. That's the definition of greatness. That's the way to understand it. Now, 
If that was all that Jesus had to say about the matter, it would be profound enough, but he doesn't leave it at just that. He expands on that, as I said, throughout the rest of this chapter. And you can see the link between verses 4 and 5, particularly through the word whoever. In verse 4, whoever humbles himself. In verse 5, whoever receives one such child. So Jesus is still talking about the same, uh, same person, if you will, the same concept of greatness. He's still defining this in our minds. And, and with that, he goes on to expand in very practical terms what this greatness looks like. And particularly in verses 5 through 9, he gives us three signs, you might say, of this great, great humility that's at work in the, in the life of believers. First of all, this spiritual greatness that he has introduced here it is seen he tells us in verse 5 by being supportive of weaker believers that's what he tells his disciples whoever receives one such child in my name receives me now one such child has already been defined in the context in the previous verses it is those who are entering the kingdom of god It is those who have given up on their own sort of claim of of wisdom and standing and strength. In other words, it is those who have humbled themselves to become true disciples of Christ. And Jesus is saying that this is one of the ways your greatness is going to be expressed is by being welcoming, supportive, receiving these kinds of people into your life. The, the word here uh, is often used of honoring special guests in your home, giving them special attention, regarding, regarding it as a privilege or a pleasure to be in their presence. And so to give attention to these kinds of people is to show them honor, to show them attention, to express your support uh, to Uh, to, if you will, make them feel welcomed when they are around you, not because of their importance or esteem or standing in light of the world, not because of some special accolades they have or uh, or abilities they have or any of those other things, but because simply their association with Jesus Christ, because they have affirmed Him as their only hope and source of life and wisdom. That's what Jesus means whenever he says, you receive them in my name. It is simply their affirmation of Christ and his sufficiency that in your mind establishes their importance, your esteem for them. John Nolan adds to this, he says, the key to such generous reception of the child is clearly disregard for one's own superior status. So in other words, one of the reasons that you receive them and accept them is because you yourself look at Christ the same way. You don't believe that you have answers. You don't believe that you have strength. You don't believe that you are anything And so when you meet a fellow brother, a fellow sister who has renounced those same kind of attitudes of superiority, there is a common bond. 
Or as John Calvin says, quote, the general meaning is that those who desire to obtain greatness by rising above their brethren will be so far from gaining their objective that they do not even deserve to occupy the lowest corner, end quote. In other words, greatness is going to be found not the way that the world would find it, by, by hobnobbing and associating with, uh, with those who are of high esteem. Greatness is going to be found by, by renouncing all claim to that and placing it all on Christ. This is, of course, what the pattern of discipleship looks like. Paul tells the Romans, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. Romans chapter 12. So whatever their social or economic or ethnic status, you associate with them. You treat them as you would any other brother, any other sister. You do the same to them as you would with anyone because you don't have any claim of superiority over them at all, either in stature or in wisdom or in strength. Now, at the heart of all this is the, the fundamental call of discipleship when Jesus says that if you're going to be a follower of him, you must first do what? Take up your cross, deny yourself, lose your life, give up all of your own personal comforts, if you will, so that you can open your life to strangers. You give up all of your interest so that you can pursue the benefit of others. You give up all your financial comforts if necessary to support the needs of other saints. You give up your self-focus to rejoice when others succeed or weep when they weep. You give up your high opinion of your own opinions and your own status to associate with all men who are in Christ. That's the kind of greatness that Jesus says you'll find in the kingdom. That is the definition of of maturity and faithfulness. But Jesus extends that picture, that, that picture of greatness even further in verses 6 and 7 when he tells us that spiritual greatness is also sensitive to stumbling blocks that might be in the way of others. He says in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Jesus is now telling us that a part of this greatness and a part of this receptivity and a part of this attention that you give to your other brothers and sisters is a focus on their walk with Christ. And, and the stumbling blocks... And the temptations to sin that they already face, the last thing that you want to do is to amplify those. I mean, he says this is, this is already just a part of the world that we live in. You're never going to escape that, unfortunately, as long as you are in this world before the return of Christ. All that you go through is going to be full of temptations. Every stage of life finds, uh, finds its new levels of temptation, its new struggles with sin, Life is full of trials and disappointments, opportunities to turn the wrong way. That's just, that's just inevitable, he says. 
Now that's woven into the fabric of life because the world is sinful. And people will mislead you, they will disappoint you, they will tempt you, they will provoke you because we live in a world that's pervaded with sin. But none of that would excuse the person who becomes the instrument of temptation. J.C. Ryle says, We put offenses or stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls when we do anything to keep them back from Christ or to turn them out of the way of salvation or to disgust them with true religion. We may do it directly by persecuting, ridiculing, opposing, or dissuading them from decided service of Christ. We may do it indirectly by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession and by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our own conduct. Whenever we do anything of that kind, it is clear from the Lord's words that we commit a great sin. End quote. In fact, Jesus pronounces a woe on these kinds of people. That's a, just sort of a particle, an interjection, we would call it grammatically, that expresses intense sorrow and distress and pain. That's what awaits the person who becomes the instrument of temptation. Jesus actually says it would be better for you to face a, a kind of a premature, agonizing death than to go on with your life and to become that kind of a source of temptation. It would be a blessing for you to have a, a millstone, which was this massive stone uh, uh, a drum that was pulled by livestock around uh, a, uh, a stone base in order to grind up stone. And he said, it would be better for you to have this thousand pound stone tied around your neck and cast into the sea. An absolutely horrifying way to die as you fight and struggle helplessly against the weight and the fear and anxiety builds in your heart trying to resist that first gasp of air that fills your lungs with water. It's a horrifying image. But Jesus says that act, that kind of, that kind of punishment would be an act of mercy compared to what you'll face if you allow yourself to become a source of temptation in the life of one of His children. This is obviously a call for you and I to have great care as we look at our own lives. It's obviously a call for us to curb whatever kind of pursuits and appetites and desires that might be, that might be taking place in our life that could potentially become an instrument of temptation to those around us. We lead other people into un godly and unholy pursuits we lead other people into all kinds of intoxication with the world for 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 a spiritually great person though a part of their fundamental greatness is this humility that they would never position themselves in a point of influence uh, for someone else into sin they would rather die than do something like that. They would rather have a millstone tied around their neck than to do something like that. This is genuine greatness. 
It is essentially replacing yourself and your own indulgences and your own entertainment and your own uh, pursuits of leisure, your own sense of freedom. It's essentially replacing yourself at the center of your concerns with other people and their concerns and their spiritual health. As the Apostle Paul says, he, he makes himself a slave to others that he might win them to Christ. This is kind of the idea. Whatever offense, whatever stumbling block, whatever potential source of or, or avenue of temptation, the humble believer is just unwilling to tolerate that in their own life if it might mean in any way leading someone further away from Christ. Their attitude is not, well, you know, if, if you're struggling because of my behavior, that's your problem. That's not their attitude. They don't have that sense of superiority. That, that would be more akin to the Pharisees who, who would, Jesus says, lay heavy burdens on people and not lift them with one of their fingers. They would actually welcome the opportunity at times to glory in their own strength over whatever they felt like they had mastered in, and, and the highlighting of the weakness of people around them, they would glory in that kind of self-righteousness rather than be concerned about their fellow man. This is one of the main patterns of self-righteousness, the consuming concern for self, a religion that is established on your own superiority, all about measuring yourselves against other people's weaknesses and always ending up on top. So there are some, in other words, there are some who actually glory in the stumbling of their brothers and sisters. They actually highlight the weakness and temptation of their brothers and sisters. They actually fill their lips with gossip whenever they know that a brother or sister is struggling. And they do it all for self-glory. You contrast all this with the Apostle Paul, who says in 2 Corinthians 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves to every believer in every way. He says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he asks, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? I mean, it was a grief every time he heard about someone being tempted and falling. He actually tells the Romans, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. That was always his concern. That, that, that he would in some way, somehow become an avenue of weakness in a brother or sister's life, that he might weaken their conscience in some way. Weaken conscience, by the way, is the result of a person who becomes so deeply involved in a sin that their conscience becomes unreliable. That is to say that they are, they're, they're led into this pattern of ignoring their conscience. They're encouraged to ignore their conscience which leads them 
to more and more sin, to be more and more comfortable in sin. They continue that pattern, lowering their standards, becoming less sensitive every time they cross the line again and again, less sensitive to their conscience, feeling no more fear of the Lord, no more remorse when they violate what they believed was the will of God to the point where their conscience no longer screams any longer. And the conscience now gives them unreliable judgments. It no longer prompts them towards morally correct actions. It's no longer reliable anymore. It's weakened, or in the biblical sense, it's defiled. It's possible for a person to defy the voice of their conscience so habitually to reduce it to such insensitivity that Paul says it's like searing it with a hot iron, like, like the searing of skin when the nerve endings have been completely burned. It's numb. It is dead. It is no longer capable of feeling. That kind of conscience results in a life not just of confusion and not just of of further sin, but it leads to an uncontrollable sense of guilt and despair and resentment and eventual loss of joy and peace. You see this person that you've led into some sort of activity that has somehow defied or defiled their conscience And somewhere down the road, if not months, sometimes years later, you meet them and what you see is a person absolutely torn up on the inside with despair and shame and guilt. You have caused them to stumble. Paul actually says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, you have ruined them. Like like they are the work of the Lord. They are his workmanship, the scripture tells us. And you have ruined his work. I mean, it would be a, a shame or a crime for you to go into some museum and deface some masterpiece, shatter some sculpture by Michelangelo, or deface some Rembrandt painting, to say, take some fine instrument like a Stradivarius and smash it. It would be a shame to do something like that, but that... That's nothing compared to ruining the Lord's work in someone's life. So it's of particular concern for the, for the spiritual believer, for the one who's pursuing greatness, that their life never become a source of temptation, that they guard their lips, that they guard their life, they guard their way, they guard their habits, that they deal seriously with sin in their own life, lest in some way they would lead others astray. Paul says he beats his body, brings it into submission, lest after preaching to others he himself should be a castaway. This is, this is the attitude of a, a sincere believer, which is Jesus' point in verses 8 and 9 in the third sign of this spiritual greatness. Spiritual greatness is self-disciplined and personal holiness. The... the uh, Affirmative, or I should say the, uh, the alternative to the, having the millstone tied around your neck and suffering all the sorrow and pain of God's judgment because you didn't 
heed his warnings. The alternative to that is to deal seriously with sin before it ever gets to that point. Before it becomes out of hand and becomes a source of stumbling for others. And so Jesus says in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is obviously a repeat of Jesus uh, of what Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe uh, with a bit more broad application here. That one came, it seems, particularly in the context of of anger and lust, but, but here it is just in general, anything in your life that might be found to be an avenue of temptation in your own life and stumbling for someone else, you deal seriously with it. I mean, this is fierce language. This is, this is violent language. This is kind of the language that you would use to describe a battle scene. I mean, blood and and maimed limbs, and chopped off legs. That's how Jesus describes this battle with sin, dismembering and butchering and mangled and mutilated limbs. But honestly, that's how the Bible pictures the process of sanctification. It is not pretty, and it's not sweet. It is a brutal, brutal battle. It's forceful. This is decisive language. It calls for decisive action, even if it is an ongoing and lifelong process. Repeatedly, the Bible talks about putting to death the members of your flesh again and again, mortifying sin over and over and over. This is the, this is the grave concern to our Lord that we engage in this battle That we are deeply concerned with being sanctified, that is to be separated from sin. And to do that, you have to know how to do it. You have to understand the battle that you're in. You have to be willing to be maimed if necessary. That's what the Lord's trying to help you understand. The seriousness of all this. He's not calling for just some sort of mild action, some temporary restriction in your life. He's calling for an absolute eradication using figurative language here about cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes and all that. But this really is just figurative language for eradicating things in your life that lead to temptation that that really could lead to stumbling. We We know from the rest of Scripture, that the ultimate source of temptation is your heart. It's not the external things like your eyes and your hands. It's what's in your heart. Jesus teaches that Himself over and over again. The real source of murder is anger in your heart. The real source of, uh, of adultery is lust in your heart. And so to cut off your right hand obviously wouldn't eradicate sin because your left hand would still be there to to gouge out your right eye wouldn't be the ultimate solution to sin because your left eye would still be there and more importantly the lust would still be in your heart the anger would still be in your heart 
So, if sin is all about what's in your heart, why all this discussion about your eyes and your hands and your feet? Well, this is just sort of a figurative way for Jesus to talk about what is sometimes considered essential parts of your body or of your life, especially in an agrarian society like Israel where your livelihood pretty much was completely dependent on your ability to perform manual labor. There were no programmers and there were no salesmen. There were no white-collar jobs. These, these elements of your body were considered the necessities of life. They were essential. They were cherished things, we might say. And so the point is not that you have to be willing to mutilate yourself physically. The point is you have to be willing to give up and separate from anything that would be considered essential or necessary. That's how serious this battle is. Whatever you might cherish, whatever you might feel like you have to cling to, nothing is more important than being holy and being sanctified. Whatever is more important to you than being holy is too important, in other words. And it needs to be cut off. And the cutting off of whatever it is is not the thing that makes you holy. The cutting off is the evidence of your commitment to holiness. Your absolute hunger and desire for it. So if the most precious thing you have is more important to you than Christ-likeness, you will, you will be willing to be rid of it or to get rid of it. You won't pamper it. You won't cultivate it. You won't secretly hide it and stash it. You will crush it. You will torch it. You will cut it off. That's, that's what he's saying. Whatever goal, whatever possession, whatever relationship, whatever ambition... Whatever indulgence, you will give it up in order to pursue holiness and have victory over sin. And you'll do it violently if necessary, because you understand the dangers. You know, we understand this in medicine, right? We amputate things that can infect us, that can kill us. If we have some reason to believe that some... some portion of our body has gangrene, if we have some reason to believe that some organ is cancerous, we don't hesitate to take it out because we understand its pollution. We understand its danger. And so we're willing to cut off limbs. We're willing to remove lungs if we have to. What Jesus is really communicating here is a person that understands the danger of these things. They understand the imminent danger that they're under and they are willing to do whatever is necessary to cut off whatever is necessary because they understand the danger of sin. Someone might hear all this and say, well, you know, that, that's a miserable way to live. I mean, you're always ha hacking things out of your life. You're always cutting things off. You're always amputating things. You're always denying things. That's, that's such, such a gloomy an unhappy way to leave, uh, live your life. Well, actually, you have it completely backwards. It's a very unhappy thing to remain attached to the things that are poisoning you, the things that are killing you, the cancerous things that are choking out your life. It's a, it's a miserable thing to have to go through life 
with no solution for those. What Jesus is calling for here is radical amputation from the things that are killing you. The things that are infecting you. Separating yourself from all those things that may temporarily promise joy and life, but they are deceptive and they are subtle and they will eventually be deadly. And so you put them to death, you crucify them. This is always a paradox, by the way, Jesus is teaching, that the way of blessedness and the way of happiness is through the pathway of sorrow, through the pathway of mourning, through the pathway of hunger, and even sometimes persecution. It's not that... It's not that the poverty or the sorrow or the hunger themselves are satisfying, but those are the natural result when you come to realize the self-deception that you've been living in. When you come to see the sort of murderous and poisonous effects of everything that you're doing, it fills you with sorrow. It fills you with mourning. And so that, that process is necessary for you to go through so that you begin to hunger for the things that are true and right. This is, in other words, this is all language describing the way, you, the way you respond when you understand the destructive nature of sin. The natural process would be to want to amputate it. This is why you're willing to do battle this way. Because now you're suddenly evaluating things from a point of truth, really from a point of eternal truth that's what jesus says you'll realize in verse 8 it's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire i mean it's you're not going to you're not going to somehow be pursuing temporal uh, temporal indulgence and temporal joy when you know you're going to lose everything by clinging to those things so whatever losses you might face you're you know you're infinitely better having amputated those things out of your life. And so you make the decisions to do that. You exercise the self-discipline necessary to avoid the dangers of sin. You're willing to make the radical changes, radical changes to friends, radical changes to your hobbies, radical changes to your pursuits, radical changes to your environment, I found it interesting reading a little bit of James Clear's new sort of blockbuster bestseller, Atomic Habits. He makes this point, quote, people with high self-control tend to spend less time in tempting situations. It's easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. I mean, even, even people in the world recognize that basic fundamental principle of human nature. Don't overestimate your strength and assume that you're just going to be able to resist everything that you, that you sort of place yourself in front of. In another place, he says, one of the most practical ways to eliminate a bad habit is to reduce exposure to the cue that causes it. That's just, that's just human nature. When you realize the danger of certain habits, when you realize the destruction that it's bringing into your life or the or the drag it is on your spiritual life, when you recognize certain sins, 
are bringing their poisonous effects into your mind and heart, you take practical steps to eradicate it, to separate yourself. You spend less time in tempting situations. You reduce your exposure to the people or the places or the things that cue your mind towards that. It's just foolish. It's foolish for you to think that you would have sanctification any other way. And so the pathway to spiritual greatness, Jesus says, is such utter concern, not just for yourself, such utter concern for others, for the people around you, for your spouse and how you are sanctifying them, for your children and how you're sanctifying them, for your friends, for those who are co-workers around you and how you are sanctifying them, leading them to Christ maybe. The path to spiritual greatness is such a marked concern for those things that there's no personal, there's no personal indulgence, no personal pursuit that you would so cling to and cherish that you'd be willing to be an instrument of stumbling for others. That is the spiritually great person. You don't have to write a systematic theology. You don't have to be the author of hundreds of praise songs. You don't have to go to the mission field. You don't have to do any of those things to be spiritually great. This is the pathway to spiritual greatness. This is what Jesus says really is the goal. Where it ends. Receiving, guarding, protecting being concerned for his children, his little ones. Father, these are words that we need to take to heart, words that we need to hear. These are the words of Christ, and so they have, therefore, all the more importance, but they are words that we need because we live in such a self-indulgent culture, one that would encourage us in every way that our own personal interest, that our identity is bound up in those things. None of it is true, though. Our identity is bound up in being like our Savior, who so freely gave of Himself to not only redeem us, but to sanctify us. That is life that is greatness, that is truth. I pray that you would help us to embrace that, to walk in that way, and to experience the fruits and joys of that kind of spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.